Serving is something that you do a couple hours a week in some kind of program, as opposed to this consuming thing that is all of life, that our life is a service to God. If you've ever thought that ministry is done best by paid professionals, as opposed to God's masterpieces who he has saved and equipped for every good work. If you've ever drifted into any of those things, then you know you need to see yourself more as a masterpiece and less as a volunteer. And then in chapter 3, Paul gets to the motivation of the church. And it's moving the church from more guilt to more love. That the God of the universe has chosen you to accomplish his mission through you and that you need to be motivated out of love that God would do that. That he would want to use you to affect the world. And you know you need to be motivated more out of love if evangelism ever seems more uncomfortable than something that just naturally comes out of the overflow of who you are. If discipleship ever seems more like a duty than your masterpiece mission. If faith seems more private than public. Because when you're motivated by love and you love someone, you know what happens, you just can't help but talk about the people you love. It just comes out, it's who you are. And so Paul is writing just to expand this view of the church so they can see a bigger reality and get the picture of who God is and then who they are made to be, that they are made for more. And now we jump into chapter 4, in verses 1 through 6. And chapter 4 is a great place to start in the new year because chapter 4 gets to the mission of who we are. And Paul, he makes the case that we need to shift from more control to more missionaries because Paul knows the temptation of the church. And it's to want to control it's, we we want to control the programs that are going on on the church campus. We want to we make sure things go the way we like it, according to our preferences and all that. And Paul says, no, 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 you're, you're focusing on programs? You're focusing on stuff on church campus? No, no, no. The church campus, the church grounds, is the equipping station. That's the gas station. That's the place where you come together as the people of God to be recharged and energized so that you can go out into your community wherever you live, work, study, and play and share Jesus and impact people. You're, you're made for more than this. So focus on the purpose of your salvation. Let's look at it. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Paul has had it rough, okay? By any measure, any of us would say Paul has had it rough. He's been imprisoned on trumped-up charges by the Jews. He was forced to languish in a Caesarean prison for two years, just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. He appeals to his Roman citizenship. This is going to be tried by Rome. And then he's taken on this perilous sea voyage, you remember, and he's shipwrecked. And then he finally makes it to Rome. And when he's in Rome, he's chained day and night to a Roman guard. He's a personal prisoner of Nero himself. He's under house arrest. But yet Paul... 
he always refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus. Never once does he say he's a prisoner of Rome. Why? Because his viewpoint allows him to look past the chains, beyond the guard, beyond the Roman imperial system, beyond the emperor himself, and he sees only the sovereign hand of God at work in the circumstances of his life. And so he says again here in chapter 4, I am a prisoner of Jesus. Whatever circumstances Paul is going through, no matter how difficult, they do not affect his viewpoint he doesn't complain about the change. He doesn't, he doesn't just whine about his imprisonment. He doesn't say life is not fair, this is not right. He didn't do any of that. Because if Jesus put these chains on him, then they are to further the gospel in some way. These chains are not a hindrance, but somehow a help. And it's why Paul will write, we focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. You know, the, the world focuses on life circumstances. The, the world focuses and gets all bent out of shape due to the baggage of this life. You know, the, the world makes a big deal when things go wrong and things don't go right. And yeah, things are messy and things get tough. That's the nature of living in a sin-cursed world. But this should not be the case for Christians. We, we have a different filter. We have a different viewpoint. We're, we're whisked away high in the sky to see the bigger things to, to understand that we are with Christ. And so we focus on what is unseen. Why? Because that's eternal. Things that are seen are temporary. The chains are temporary. And this has a direct purpose for the church. Paul, he could see it with the churches in Asia Minor. We kind of see it today in spades. The reason the church can sometimes seem so divided so confused, so misdirected, so out of alignment is because the church tends to focus on the same things that the world focuses on. We tend to focus on our circumstances. We tend to focus on our preferences. We, we tend to focus on life's events, politics, finances, strategies, you name it. And it consumes our mind. We focus on what is seen rather than on what is unseen. And Paul, he's trying to move the church past that. He says, don't you see you were made for more? You Wake up. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ, and I'm urging you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I'm afraid that sometimes we can get so comfortable with spiritual language, so used to just doctrinal truth, that we can make statements and we can forget the gravity of those statements. We can say things like, I've been saved. God has saved my soul. I've been born again. And we can lose the awe and the gravity of the, that statement and all the ramifications of it, that we are no longer in death and darkness, that we are no longer defeated citizens of sin and Satan, that we have been bought and we are now brought to life and to light. We are citizens in God's economy now. And that we're not merely saved from something, that we are saved for something. And that, that's the big ramification of our salvation that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. That you were saved for good works. Don't miss it. Just imagine with me for a moment that you were picked to be a part of the greatest sports team of all time. Okay, the greatest sports team in the history of sports, all right? You were picked 
to be a New York Yankee. Okay? I know, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But the Yankees called you, and they said, we want you on our team. They put you on the roster. Your name is on the roster. They make a jersey for you. You get, to, you get a locker in the clubhouse. You get to hang out with all your teammates. You get to read all the scouting reports. You get access to all the good coaching and all the best techniques and all this kind of stuff, all the best training. And what's more, you are actually skilled, gifted, talented enough to be a New York Yankee. This is not some kind of pity thing, but you are skilled enough to be on the team. And you enjoy your time. I mean, you're, you're in awe that you're a Yankee. You enjoy your time in the clubhouse. You, you like being able to put that jersey on. You, you like seeing your name on the roster. But then the manager comes and he says, hey, you got to get in the game. And you say, and you say no, I'm, I'm just comfortable on the bench here. He says, no, I, I wrote your name in the lineup. You're, you're at first base. Come on, you got to get in the game. And you say, no, 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 I, I'm good. I, I, just, I can just sit on the bench. See, Paul is writing to the church and saying, wake up. You got to get in the game. What do you think you were saved for? And sometimes, Christian, we can be satisfied just knowing that our name is on the roster. We can be satisfied just getting to huddle up with our teammates. We can be happy just reading the scouting report. And Paul's saying, you were made for more. Live a life worthy of your calling. What do you think you've been saved for anyway? Come on, live the life you were made to live. The first three chapters of Ephesians are devoted to explaining to the Christians, to explaining to the church what they have as a result of being in Christ. And so in the first three chapters of Ephesians, God gives all this big doctrinal foundational truth so that they can understand what this now means being in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul moves from all of the all of that foundational doctrine, all of that necessary understanding to how it works in real life. And so then he begins to get real practical. And Paul talks about how to do this. He moves from this grand, exalted doctrine and truth of the realities of, of, of who we are now to how this plays out in the daily existence of life. And he links the eternal plan of God just to our daily grind. And so that's what he's beginning to do here in chapter 4. And the foundational part of this that Paul writes right here in Ephesians 4 is, hey, if, if you want to live a life worthy of your calling, it starts with humility, it's love, it's maintaining the peace. And your viewpoint makes all the difference here. That if you don't have all this foundational knowledge from chapters 1, 2, and 3, then living this out, it becomes real difficult. Because if you see the church as your primary location for where your Christian life is to be lived, what happens? You want control here. Well, hey, this, this, is, this is it for my Christian life. And we've kind of boxed off and segment off the areas of our life. We want control. We, we want the things the way they ought to be, the way we think they ought to be. We want the type of programs that we're looking for. We've got to have this. And everything tends to take on more and more and more importance. And you want to take control to make sure it's done the way that you think it ought to be done, that things happen the way you think they ought to happen. And humility can be difficult if this is your destination. Love becomes conditional. I, I will love it as long as this happens. But if your viewpoint is you see the church campus 
as this is your gas station, it is essential, yes, never give up meeting together with the body of Christ, but this is the gas station where you come and you get refueled and you get charged up so that then you can go and live the life that God made you to live. That the church is proclaiming all the truths of Scripture, that's important. And, you, and that, that's what you judge a church by. Does this church actually teach the truth of Scripture? Does this church actually equip me to live a life worthy of my calling? Because that's what the church is supposed to do. That's what the campus is supposed to be about. And our unity in doing that, in holding up the truths of Scripture, and equipping the saints for the work of ministry wherever we live, work, study, and play, that's what the church is to be about. And when it becomes about programs, when it becomes about preferences, when it becomes about styles, we have missed the point of who we are. And so Paul, he's writing, and he says, our unity is our witness to a watching world that speaks to the reality of our resurrected Savior. That a diverse group of people, people with all kinds of different backgrounds, can gather together and worship God and be equipped to share Jesus and impact people wherever we live, work, study, and play. This is what the church is about. And notice here, our job, Paul writes, is to maintain the unity. We don't create unity. Okay? Organizations, institutions, they do that. In the church, we don't create unity. Jesus already did that. He did that when he saved us and adopted us into his family unified. We are one family. So we do everything without complaining or grumbling. We don't whine because we're a unified people. And wherever there is an absence of unity in the church, it is because members of the church allow themselves to be used as instruments of Satan to bring disunity. And wherever there is disunity in the church, you have an unhealthy church where people's priorities are skewed and complaining comes charging in and the effectiveness of the church wanes because our testimony to the watching world is compromised. Think of this. Okay, we've been... We've been saved and adopted into a unified family. We've been given a clear mission to be ambassadors who go and make disciples. And we do that with all humility, not seeking control, simply to see the mission accomplished. But what happens? Sadly, churches can divide and can get all bent out of shape over things like the color of the carpet the style of music, programs that are being offered, whatever preference you want to name, how things are done. And Paul says, no, come on. You're made for more than this. Look at your mission. Look at who you are. You must be single-minded. You are made to live a life worthy of your calling. Are you being equipped to do that? What happens when the church gathers together is that people from all different backgrounds, who live in all different areas of life, come together and they focus on the one thing, this big God who has made his church for big things, and they worship this God and they celebrate this God and their batteries are charged, they can go out throughout the week and then share Jesus and impact people, be intentional about making disciples. You know, we've got to be able to look, we've got to be able to say, okay, I'm actively and intentionally making disciples 
These are the people I am act- I'm actively and intentionally investing in so that that person, so that these people will look more like Jesus a month from now having been around me than they do today. But what happens? We, we forget that. And we'd rather be entertained than be equipped. We'd rather party than be prepared. In America, there are... Uh, the nuns and the duns. Have you heard of these groups? Uh, people who study church attendance and these kind of things, they, they've, they've come up with these two names. The nuns are those who claim no religious affiliation at all. Okay? Agnostic, atheist type people. And then there's also the duns. Those who used to be involved in church at one point, and now they say, you know, I want no part of organized religion. I'm out. I'm done with it. And those numbers are, are growing. They're about now to the same numbers that we were in the 1940s, about 1940. But, um, but they're growing in America. And about 32%, about one-third of our uh, country now identifies as either none or done. And the response that the church is having, really focusing on the duns, is saying, okay, if we can just entertain you, if we can just build this attractional church model where you can come and you can feel like, oh, this is good, and get all those warm fuzzies and you would enjoy being here, maybe this will win them back. And the other response is kind of almost on the complete opposite end where churches are saying, your loss, you know, you checked out, we're not changing anything, it's your loss. I believe what the church must do is to challenge the people of God, to pursue what God has called the church to be, to get back focused on our mission. Why? We've watered it down so much that the church comes along and says, we'll, we, hey, we can entertain you. Just come. You'll enjoy what's going on here and you know, find a place where you can, you can fit in. And we, we build this consumeristic Christianity. Oh, if you don't like it here, you can go search for greener pastures over there. Just find a church that fits in, that caters to what you're looking for. And we've watered it down to this milquetoast Christianity, and Paul is saying, no, a faithful Christian lives a life worthy of their calling. This, this is what it means to be a Christian. A faithful Christian is actively and intentionally making disciples. That's what a Christian looks like. And so here at Central, we want to make sure that we are equipping you to do just that. That we want to build into you so that you can look and you can have conversations and you can say, yeah, here, here are the people I'm discipling. Here are the people I am intentionally investing in. And is it a little nerve-wracking a little bit if you've never done anything like that before? And you think, I don't know. I, no one's really ever discipled me. I don't know if I can disciple anyone. I don't, I don't, how do I do this? Where do I start? And part of the reason to answer those questions, we want to help you build some confidence that you can do it. And that's that's one of the places where impact groups come in, where we can just challenge each other that we are impacting each other. And yeah, we're at various different degrees and various stages of that process. Some of us have never done it before and we're just starting out. Some of you have been discipling people intentionally for a long time. Some of you somewhere in between. We've fallen on our face a few times. We've tried. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. But we get together and we study together so we can say, okay, how are we going to go and impact people? Because I, I need to hear your stories of who you're impacting. You need to hear my stories of who I'm impacting. 
I need to hear what you're doing. You need to hear what I'm doing. I need to be challenged by you and your spiritual gifts, and you need to be challenged by me and my spiritual gifts because I cannot be complete in Christ, alone in Christ. And then there's our impact development classes. And we have these to kind of target those areas that, you know, you can't really talk about in an impact group. So once you join an impact group, if you still have a little extra time in your schedule, we, we want to encourage you to hop into an impact development class so that you can learn skills like, how do I study my Bible? You know, I, I want to be able to get more out of this thing as I read it. And sometimes it's confusing to me. How do I study it so I can understand it well and I can live it? And then also, what, what am I made to do? How, how has God gifted me and equipped me so that I can live out my masterpiece mission? And so we've got classes like that. And when we pour in and just become laser-focused on the mission that God has given us, this, this unity in Christ takes over, and it will be on full display for a watching community, and it is a testimony of the reality of God at work in our lives. Our calling, our purpose, our reason for being as the church is to live out the character of Jesus Christ, is to obey his marching orders in our personal and our corporate lives together. It's to share Jesus and to impact people. Everywhere we go, that, that's what we were saved to do. We, like Paul, are now prisoners of the Lord, and these are his orders, and this is a good thing. This is a joyous thing. It is our joy and glorious duty to be able to carry out his marching duties wherever we go, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we are focused on the right things. And then Paul begins to clarify this unity for us because you know you can be unified around a lot of things. We could be unified around, you know, if we all liked to eat hamburgers and hot dogs after church on Sunday, we could be unified about that. We could be unified about uh, the programs that we like, the styles that we like. We can be unified around all of our different preferences. We can be unified about those things. But Paul said, that's, that's not what I'm after you being unified about. I want you to be unified about your mission, what you were called to do, and here are the bedrocks of that. Here are the foundations of the faith that you must understand. So then he goes through and he clarifies this unity, this oneness for us, so that we understand what we must be unified about. Unity is oneness. It's not sameness. Part of the glory and the beauty of the church is that God saves people from all different backgrounds. You have all different ethnicities. You have, you have male and female. You have different socioeconomic statuses. You have different preferences. You have different likes and dislikes, different age ranges. Part of the beauty of the church is that all these diversified people can gather together as one focused as one people, one body, on the mission that he's called us to be. And so I, I want to go through and just kind of look at this with you for a little bit. Because unfortunately, uh, even with all that oneness, we tend to focus on our differences. And we tend to focus on ourselves. And that's where humility comes in, is we, we want things the way we want it. And then friction arises over differences. And we're not the only church that that happens in. You know, you, you look back. Uh, Philippians 4. Okay, Philippians 4. Uh, Paul is writing, and he, he mentions these two ladies. They have hard Greek names. And he says, hey, how come you guys are arguing with each other? 
y'all, y'all, y'all need to get together and pursue unity. And we want to write these two ladies off as just two older women who maybe they have nothing better to do than just like kind of argue with one another. Well, that's not the way Paul addresses them. He says that these women were co-laborers with him for the gospel. That these women were intentional about sharing Jesus and impacting people, about discipling people. That they, they, they were intentional, they were faithful. But now something has happened where there's this disagreement, and rather than focusing on the mission like they did before, now, that, now they're just focused on the differences that they have with one another. And Paul writes and he says, for the sake of the church, you've got to move by that, past that. This is not what you were made for. There's this foundational truth at work, okay? You can have two ladies who don't feel unified. You can have two ladies who are not acting unified. That's all true. We can violate our unity by our actions. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by our sinful behavior. But notice this, they are still unified. They are still one. They, they, they may not be acting like it. They may not feel like it. But because of the spirit and the body that God has saved them to, they are still one. But now their disunity discredits the gospel. We can't create this unity. Jesus already created it for us. But we can bring some disunity about. It doesn't override the overall unity that we have. But it brings a discredit to the name of Jesus because we're focused on the wrong things. It's like this. If, if me and my wife, Steph, if we're having an argument, okay, we can be in the middle of an argument, and um, she can be upset with me about something, I could be upset with her about something, we could be in the middle of that argument, and if someone were to come to me and they were to complain about Steph, all of a sudden, whatever we had, whatever kind of argument, whatever kind of disagreement that we had going on, all that goes out the window. Because now you've complained about my wife. And I'm able to set all that aside because I have a greater unity with her than I have with you. And now my argument is not so much with her, but it is with you. That's what happens. I'm fortunate. I have several just really close friends scattered around the the country. and, And I know that if something really hard or something really tough were to happen, I could call any one of them. And I can say, hey, I'm just in a mess, man. Could you, could you come out and, and help me out? And they would. You know, they'd get on a plane, and they know that I'd do the same for them. And, uh, you know, they have the freedom of asking me hard questions and just how's life and, and whatever. And, and I have the freedom to speak freely and just tell them what's going on. But in that freedom, if I were to say to them, you know, I really appreciate our friendship. I really value our friendship and all we've been through, but I gotta tell you, I can't stand your wife. (laughs) How long do you think that friendship is gonna last? I mean, it's in all kind of trouble. Jesus says that his bride is the church. Is it perfect? No, not right now. He's in the process of purifying us of, uh, so that we are made for that glorious day. You know, he's used Paul and John and others to write letters to the church to tell us, hey, remember, you're getting off track. Here's what you got to focus on. Hey, don't do it like that. This is wrong. Hey, do it like this. This is right. He's, he's used 
men to write and to tell us, here's the way the church ought to look, that, that you kind of miss the mark. But if somebody has the audacity to come and to complain about the church, Jesus says, watch out. She's my bride. She's mine. I died for her to redeem her so that I can present her to the Father as holy, as blameless. She's mine. And if you are complaining about her, if you're bad-mouthing her, i got to tell you, get behind me, Satan. Because I am building this church up so that the walls of Hades will not prevail against it. So our focus ought to be on the oneness, on the unity, not all this periphery. We must shift from more control to more missionaries because that's who we're created to be. Missionaries. And so I want to spend some time just kind of going through what Paul says the bedrocks of this unity is. First, he says we are one body. Not one organization, not one institution, not one building. We are one body. And a body is a living organism. consists of thousands of cells within one mutually shared life. And that shared life, that shared unity exists despite all kinds of distinctions and different functions and all that. It's still one body. And I've had the privilege of training pastors in several different countries and going over there. And oftentimes I've got to have translators in order to communicate with them. But there's something that happens. They may not understand my language and I may not be able to understand their language. But when we are together and they are worshiping in their language or they hear me worshiping in my language or I hear them praying or they hear me praying, I don't need the translator to know that there is a unity of peace that exists here because we are unified in one family. You just know it. You just feel in your spirit. You know that it is true. You know that it's there. And that brings us to the next aspect of oneness. Paul says there is one spirit. That the power of the church comes not from her numbers necessarily, but from the one spirit who makes us one body. And you get this throughout the scriptures. The prophet Zechariah <laughs> He heard God say, hey, I'm going to take this mountain and I'm going to level it. And Zechariah, he says, where are you going to get enough power to level this mountain? How are you going to turn this mountain into a plain? Where are you going to get enough people to do that? And God replies, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the true power behind the church, not her numbers. It is the Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit everywhere in every church throughout the generations. And then Paul links the first two, the one body and the one Spirit, to this one hope, the hope of our calling. This is why we focus on what, what we're called to do. This is why we focus on what we are saved for, not necessarily what we are saved from that the Spirit forms and prepares the body for this ultimate goal, which is the hope of the church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that glory, that's, that's the hope that one day our frail stumblings of this world, these weak bodies will give way and we will be just as Christ is. That is the hope of all Christians everywhere in every church in every decade, every generation. And next, one Lord it's interesting here. Paul doesn't say one Savior, though that would be true as well. But theologically speaking, everywhere in scriptures where you see God saving, it's because people acknowledge him as Lord. There's sometimes been this erroneous idea in the church that you can have God as Savior, but somehow not have him as Lord. That, in scripture, you just never see that. You either take God as Lord or you don't get him at all. 
because he's come to be Lord. He's come to be the sovereign king of your life. Does it mean you obey his rules and, and commands fully every single time? No, we're growing in our obedience. But we still recognize him as Lord, that he has the authority to speak into every circumstance of my life. And then the, and the church gladly says, yes, we have one Lord, it is Jesus. And so we follow his commands, we follow his authority. This is the mission he says we're on and I'm in. That's why you look at the history of the church and you see Christians in the early centuries and they were tortured and there was the threat of death. But even all that could not wring the words from their mouth that Jesus was not Lord. They, they, they would never say Caesar is Lord because there is no other Lord. One faith, one body is the next thing. This one faith, the next aspect of oneness. It's this one body of truth that God has revealed to us in his word. That faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And this is a glorious thing because there's not a faith for the Jew. There's not a faith for the Gentile. There's not a faith for a man. There's not a faith for a woman. There's not you have your faith and I have my faith. There's not you have this Jesus and I have my Jesus. There is one faith that the body of Christ comes around and says, this is the faith that we declare. This is the faith that we proclaim. This is the hope of our salvation. If you're in the church, you share one faith in the historical Jesus and the scriptures. And he says, we all partake in one baptism. We are baptized into one body by the one spirit. We are baptized into his death, as Romans says, that this is the one baptism of the church. And it is confessed at all times and every place by followers of Jesus everywhere. And there is one God and Father of us all. Paul desperately wants us to understand how big this God is. That he is above all and he is through all and he is in all. That he is inescapable. He is at the end and he is at the beginning. He is close and approachable, and yet at the same time, he is vast and in some ways beyond our comprehension. And once we begin to grasp just a little bit of this infinite God, our pride succumbs to humility, and we say, God, what, whatever you will, what, what do you have for me? What is my mission? Because that's the nature of Christian unity. Not, not, it's not a union to be created it is a unity that has been given and that we proclaim and we say this unites us. This is who we are as a church. It's a unity that already exists because we've been brought into the family. We can try to unite around all kinds of things. But if we try to reunite around anything other than this, it's no different than any kind of organization it's no different than any kind of institution. It's no different than joining your local YMCA or any other thing. These are the bedrocks of the church. This is our mission. We unite around the essentials of the faith so that our heads will be lifted out of the sand and we will shift our focus not on what is seen but on what is unseen, that we will fulfill the mission that God has given us to live as missionaries. Wherever we live, work, study, and play. And when you have a church focused on disciple-making, and how can I go and make more disciples? You know, when I go to Sierra Leone, one of the things I'm going to be asking the guys that I'm discipling is, how is it going with the guys you're discipling? Because all of them are discipling other men. And then another question I will ask them, 
is, hey, those men that you were discipling, how's it going with the guys they're discipling? Because all of the guys they're discipling, they too are supposed to be discipling other men as well. Because when this disciple-making movement begins to take place, you have a healthy church. A church focused on her mission and who she is made to be. A church that is gathered rightly together. It becomes this gas station when we are equipped and we are encouraged and we're sharing with each other. Here's who I'm pouring into. What about you? How's it going? How can I be an encouragement to you? Are you living out your mission? Or are you just going through the motions? We are blessed that we were made for more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious calling that you've given us. That you didn't merely save us from something, but that you saved us to be a part of your eternal work here on earth for heaven's sake. And God, in some ways, that's just beyond our comprehension God, forgive us for when that seems so big that we'd rather just focus on preferences, rather focus on styles, rather focus on programs. God, focus us with this laser of the bedrocks of the faith and this unity of the mission that you've given us so that we can faithfully make more disciples who they themselves are able to make more disciples. God, help us this year in 2020 to share Jesus and impact people for the glory of God the Father. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.